listening to the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast that talks shop, shit, and strategy for oil, energy, and politics. Here's your host, Catherine Mills. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast that talks shop, shit, and all things strategy for oil, energy, and politics. I am Catherine Mills. Today's topic, well, with the impending debate between MTG and AOC, it is time to talk decarbonization and what the Green Gang is not telling you. Joining me today is Tucker Perkins of PERC, which is the Propane Education and Research Council. I'm so glad I nailed that. Tucker, welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. It's going to be a fun day and I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited to hear what you have to say. As you know, decarbonization, the idea of decarbonization is one that is hot in politics right now. People are talking about it on how to improve the earth. Uh, it is. It means something different to everyone in every industry. And thus, I would argue it's becoming a buzzword rather than an actionable plan. So before we jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about PERC, and really where y'all fit into the grand scheme of things in terms of the energy movement? Well, sure. So PERC is an acronym for the Propane Education and Research Council. And if I could really boil it down, we are advocates for using propane across the country and, and making sure that it's used safely, correctly, and growing the use. And in many cases, trying to see that we believe propane has a spot today and how to use it today, but but position it to be well thought of 20, 30, 40 years from now. And by the way, I think it'll be certainly something different than propane. We'll, we know in 2050, we'll be talking about renewable fuels, but our job is to think about how the U.S. consumes propane today and make sure that it's used safely and correctly. We do a lot of investments. I mean, we're you'll see me talking, you'll, you'll realize that I'm working with the likes of Cummins and John Deere and UPS and a lot of end users. Um, so we have great insights as really venture capitalists as well about investing in a lot of this technology. So I have to admit, when I was doing research on y'all and prepping for this uh, interview, <laughs> which is, is bound to be lively, I did not realize the extent of the propane community. I mean, nobody ever all, does. <laughs> all I knew about propane, well, outside of me being an engineer and NGLs, was uh, I work with propane and propane accessories from King of the Hill. <laughs> a little bit of Matt nothing Mr. better, <laughs> nothing better than Hank Hill. Hank Hill's coming back, I'm told. I think he is actually. Um, but where I want to start this conversation with you because there's just there is a lot of good information out there. There is a lot of misinformation. And if anything, the social platforms, due to the short nature of their uh, statements, tend to gear towards misinformation. So let's go back. Let's explain from your perspective what we're actually trying to achieve with decarbonization. It really started taking off, I would say, 20 years ago, but we're seeing it more and more in the media. Yeah, I think. Certainly. I mean, I was doing a little research as well. I don't remember talking about decarbonization before the Paris Accord, which was in 2016. I don't even remember ever talking about it. I certainly know we didn't talk about it to our customers. We talked about value and cost and benefits, 
we didn't talk about climate at all. So my first recollection is with the, you know, COP 21, or excuse me, COP 16, really, the first time we went to Paris. And then just it's really been in the last two or three years, and really the last year that we have had now a much growing drumbeat. I'm, I personally have sat in on two meetings this week, and I'm shocked at where awareness has moved from a year ago, kind of even into the pandemic to now where the the noise is all about uh, carbon and carbon reduction. Well, when people say decarbonization, they tend to only think, or at least the immediate general crowd thinks CO2. It's methane, it's nitrogen, it's several VOCs that are considered volatile compounds released in the air through multiple industries. The one that gets the heat mostly is the energy sector, primarily from coal, but what coal is today is not coal from the Industrial Revolution. So why do you think that people are latching on to this this notion when such progress has been made across the energy spectrum? I really, Catherine, wish I knew the answer to that question. And I, I, I tend to think you have to follow the money and follow the special interest to a degree. Um, and I think that's really what it's all about because people are so uh, willing to stand back and not let you know free market and free trade achieve what they've been achieving for the last year, which is we really have let natural gas rise to the position of prominence it should because of the cost and the availability and the wide usage. You know, that's where we're seeing any declines we've seen in carbon for the last 12 months that really come from natural gas being used. And I think that's what, to me, the narrative is so frustrating in that the narrative is theoretically about reducing carbon, I might argue that almost every solution that's being proffered right now probably won't reduce carbon. And if it does, it'll reduce it at a price no one is really willing to pay. And that's Um, the key, right? The energy industry, your side, my side, coal, everything. The goal is affordable, reliable, consistent energy. And when you push the narrative of decarbonization, they leave out the price tag. So when we're looking at options like natural gas and propane for the hottest topic there is, which is the electric grid, can you sort of take us through the differences between propane and natural gas? (laughs) And really, what is this movement for the electric grid itself? Yeah, and I I definitely want to say, because it seems to have become a battle about fossil fuels versus electricity, as though electricity is not generated from things. It's though electricity is its own thing, when in fact electricity is generated from today, mainly coal, natural gas, some nuclear. Mm -hmm. I mean, renewables share today in the country is really minimal. Um, So I'll I'll answer your question directly, though. Natural gas... uh, Propane generally comes from cleaning up the heavier parts of natural gas. So when we find natural gas, we clean it up. And one of the things that comes out of it is propane. 30 years ago, propane also came from cleaning up crude oil and, you know, was very prominent in California where there were quite a bit of oil wells. But today with the proliferation of natural gas, 75% of the natural gas in the country comes from cleaning up natural gas. And by the way, we are the world's largest provider by far of propane 
uh, in the U.S. So it's this oh. great domestic resource that then we ship all over the world. And if I travel to Japan or parts of Asia, I mean, they revere us for our ability to send them carbon molecules that are clean and really good for their environment and ones that they can easily transport and store and use. Um, we are providing propane to all of South America, Central America, and it's such a versatile fuel. Now, to your point, people never think about power generation, meaning, you know, utility scale, power generation using propane. And I think, I don't know, 10 years ago, that's probably how it was. Fast forward to today, we are the power generation in the Virgin Islands. We are the power generation in a lot of parts of the Caribbean. And I suspect we will be the power generation for most of Africa um, when, you know, really true power comes to Africa because propane is propane to a degree is a portable natural gas. Natural gas requires a pipe unless it's LNG and then, a, you know, a lot of complexities around LNG. Propane really brings to an economy the benefits of natural gas with a lot more ease of transport, easier to store, uh, use. Uh, and then we tend to differ in one area and environmentalists seize on the methane releases that happen in that gas, right? And I'm, I'm always quick to say the natural gas industry will figure out how to fix that. Um, no question in my mind that innovation will occur such that methane releases will be fewer and fewer and fewer as we go into the future. Propane, though, fortunately, one of the uses of propane today is as a refrigerant. Global warming potential is under four, um, and that's because unburned propane is really pretty friendly to the atmosphere compared to other fluorocarbons, some of which have a global warming potential of 3,500. So, um, but to your, to your point, I think propane and natural gas have a natural relationship. If you have access to mains, you'll use natural gas. If you are beyond the mains, you should use propane. And today, we're involved in quite a few power generation products and projects that we hadn't been before, other than everybody knows about that propane generator at their house mm -hmm. that comes on when they lose power or hurricane comes through. And, um, you know, we, we power 90% of the cell tower sites around the country for their backup power generation. So as you say, people don't know about us, but we're almost everywhere. Well, the idea of natural gas and propane, uh, there was a key word you said, the word clean. Knowing that right now, most of the electric grids across the entire globe, and even in the locations like Japan or Germany, who like to get the, the green check mark, the seal of approval, they are actually still putting in coal plants. Coal plants account for about 38 to 40% of the grid just the general electric grid um, in, let's say, developed countries, developing countries, and taking that offline compromises baseload. So while natural gas and propane are alternatives in terms of baseload, this notion of decarbonization, it's hard to say that you're ever going to get that percentage down from something as abundant and affordable as coal. Right, big, these big baseload power plants, and I don't really care whether they're fueled by coal or, or natural gas, they're, they're huge and they're big. And so their output is measured often in hundreds of megawatts. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, 
the loss of one well, that's also is Texas. That's yeah, size of the plant. Yeah, they're they're huge and they're they're huge contributors to the electric grid. And so I don't think the normal consumers have any comprehension of the scale and size of a commercial power plant versus replacing it with wind, solar, or any other renewable. I mean, we never talk about some things that are really relevant to me, like land use. Correct. Uh, and every once in a while, I'll be able to get into a, a conversation where land use is top of mind. And it, it's staggering to think about how many acres would be used for wind farms, onshore wind farms, or even offshore wind farms. I was just reading today, even in, in doing some other work, that an offshore wind farm could easily consume 80 to 85 acres per, you know, set of blades. Let me think about the scale of that. It's, it's incredible. We're, we're going to ruin the earth to save the planet as we think about, you know, putting onshore wind across every farm and mountaintop. And it's, just, it's not visually appealing. And frankly, it's also, again, I, I, I firmly believe we're going to learn to work with solar and renewable but again, you think about, it, I was looking today, the current research suggests that most of these renewables, particularly uh, solar, it might derate to 19% of the capacity for a natural gas plant, a coal plant. They don't derate. They're generally at 100% of capacity. Mm -hmm. And so lots of little nuances when you start getting into the real mechanics. But again, at some level, there's this myth that Fossil fuels are bad and electricity is good. And I can be an advocate for lowering carbon, an advocate for all of the good parts of environmental activism and still be strongly pro-natural gas, pro-propane. I still have a problem with the word clean, though, because I feel like clean is a marketing term and not a reality. And to your point, land use, solar, wind. So we know from the Texas freeze that wind, again, not reliable, but it also started bringing up the topic of alternative energy is not what the average consumer thinks of. There's still environmental impacts. There are still inconsistencies. It's not necessarily growing across the spectrum, but the labeling of fossil fuel-based energy, uh, coal, as dirty, it's inaccurate. Black coal, yeah, yeah, industrial era, sure. But Ignite is actually noted as its uh, low carbon content for burning. So the coal plants that are being replaced in other countries, not here in the U.S., but they do not have the same emission standards as what is being marketed Methane, abundant, okay? Natural gas, we have not broken 250. I mean, we'll see spikes every once in a while, but that glorious and epic 250 <laughs> per MCF. And, you know, it makes it harder when we see uh, production reductions happen from every state because of gluts in the market, which ultimately will affect the price of propane and drive it up because you have to get NGLs from the dropouts of other produced fossil fuels. So this, this notion of clean is a misconception and also kind of what's driving me crazy with this impending debate between AOC and MTG. It will be 
it will be a show of epic proportion. Now, you, I want you to react. You react as negatively to clean as I tend to zero emission. I mean, I, I read oh, daily true. about zero okay. emission vehicles and to which I always retort, well, truthfully, they're not even zero emissions sitting still. But if they are, then they're certainly not the minute they go in motion and someone needs to recharge batteries. And I think that that is that is the epitome there of the argument, right, is that there is no there is a consequence to every action. And by the way, I think you are, you've already been talking about it. There's going to be one consequence of even this world that the environmentalists per perceive as the nirvana, and that is. They're devising solutions that, frankly, I don't think anyone can afford to pay for. Mm -mm. And because no individuals can afford to pay for it, there still becomes this vision. Well, then government should pay for it as though government is some entity other than a collection of individuals who are paying taxes. And so at some level, we're beginning, we're talking about solutions that we couldn't even afford if they work. Now, I would you, you didn't ask me. I start from an engineering background. And mm -hmm. so I'm trying to find solutions that I think actually will work and are affordable. And and this is one of the areas that makes me probably most concerned is the most strong hearted environmentalists. Two pillars of their arguments are always about justice and equity. I don't find any justice or any equity in finding solutions that people cannot afford. And by I the way, agree. while you're on this topic, we might as well go there in case you want to, <laughs> to have a single metric of greenhouse gases and climate and temperature rise, to me is completely disingenuous to the population Should totally match climate and health. And in many respects, I will argue that the people of California should be so much more interested and invested in reducing NOx emissions and particulate emissions and being concerned about the things that give them asthma and lung health and bronchitis, rather than worrying about whether the temperature rises 1.3 or 1.4 degrees, that in many cases, health issues are even more important than climate issues today. Now that said, they're all important, but I think to allow everybody to have this one dimensional concern around climate is somewhat disingenuous to all of us because I think climate and health are inseparably linked and to focus on one without focusing on the other is, is completely bad science. All right, y'all, I am going to take a minute and tell you about my company, Crude Media Inc. Crude Media is the creative agency dedicated to building marketing strategies based off of quantifiable data. Now, I know that many of us are looking for our next opportunity, looking to build our existing business unit, or heck, looking to build a personal brand within our industry. Did you know that a well-executed marketing strategy is one of the most crucial elements to successful growth? But here's the dirty little secret. You need a strategy based on data. And it's true. Partnering with the right strategist not only helps you build your footprint and generate new leads, but they can help you identify areas of opportunity within your existing plan so that you can continue to build lines of revenue and exceed your goals. If you are ready to turn your ideas into energy, connect with us at Crude Media Inc. Check us out on Facebook today. Well, it's interesting you say that because the environmental movement arguably started in the mid 60s. Some will say the late 50s, but one of the breakout moments that it had was the release of the book uh, Silent Spring, where it was 
essentially someone's opinion of what will be happening, not necessarily science. And we've seen it across news articles ever since then. The ice caps are melting. We're killing the penguins. The polar bears are mutated. You know, it's it's doom and gloom. None of it has come to fruition. I mean, it, it just has not. None of this has been predicted. In fact, in most cases, actually, I think in all cases, you can directly attribute fracking efforts to improved air quality especially here in Colorado. I mean, it's not something they like to tout, but it started happening because of the oil and gas industry, because of what we've been able to provide from natural gas, from uh, NGLs. And there is this, the, the truth behind the environmental movement, and I'm, I'm curious of your thoughts on this, was really an attack on the consumer and capitalism for the big, the intervention of big government as opposed to that green dream that everyone sort of thinks of for bettering the planet. So do you kind of, can you shed some light on that evolution of the, the green movement there? Well, I can't shed much more light than you just did other than to say, again, there's this view that all of this natural resource that we have today, which, by the way, I also might like to talk as, as the conversation turned to infrastructure. I never hear anyone talk positively about underground infrastructure, pipelines that are out of sight, out of mind, already bought and paid for in lieu of some infrastructure that everybody seems to prefer overhead pipelines. I don't know about you. I'm overhead power lines. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I have a choice, I much prefer to see an underground pipeline. I know it's a safe. I know it's bringing product. And by the way, it's visually appealing. And I manage thousands of miles of pipeline. And I know how we ha handled game habitat and worked with farmers. I mean, it was useful. But to see people that say, oh, no, I don't want underground pipelines, but I do want batteries that are mined underground. I do want overhead lines. It, just, it doesn't make any sense. And I find the environmental movement to a degree, I, I could be in so sync with it if it was about conservation using resources wisely, uh, treating the earth. I mean, I love the Appalachian Trail, right? When you're there, leave only footprints, take only pictures. That's the kind, I get totally on board with that kind of environmental movement. But to have this environmental movement begins to say, oh, well, oil and coal and natural gas and propane, those are bad things. Electricity that comes from oil, oil coal, natural gas and propane, oh, that's okay. It, doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. And so somehow or another, we need to change the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So the rhetoric is now truly about what is good for this planet, good for America, um, and what, what kind of habits should we promote and what should we stop promoting? I mean, I think there are so many opportunities for us. From us, us relying more on propane in transportation would be a wise choice, right? The benefits of propane over diesel and transportation, um, it's staggering. We can cut emissions in some cases, NOx emissions, we can cut it 97% in a lot of cases. So there, is, there are things that we can do, and you've already identified one of them. The more we use natural gas, the better off we are. But I have to say, I read, I read a brilliant uh, Write up, and I don't, I don't, it wasn't brilliant, but I'm glad the guy wrote it finally. A professor at University of Houston talking about, let me see, we want to remove natural gas from buildings 
and we want to put electricity into those buildings, except for the electricity that goes in, it's about 30% efficient. So we're going to use three or four units of energy, which by the way, are produced by natural gas back at the power plant. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take away the direct application of natural gas in a building, and we're going to substitute it for the indirect use of natural gas through electricity. So instead of a one-to-one relationship, we're going to take four units of energy to get one unit of electricity. I mean, where is the sense in that? And I think those are the kinds of conversations that I keep thinking rationally will rise up to the top. But I I don't expect that to come out of this next debate. I, I just think at some level right now, this debate is about emotion and it's about, you know, uh, I will often say the church of the moral compass. And I'll tell you who is more moral than the other instead of real solutions to real problems. You know, I hate the quote, um, but it becomes so relevant to me sometimes. Perfect is the enemy of good, right? That's a, kind of a very famous quote. Perfect is the enemy of good. And I find that's exactly what we're doing. I'm, I'm watching the numbers. I'm studying quite as we run up now to the new, to the revised Paris Accord. Hey, how did we do in the old Paris Accord? And the numbers are there, right? Nobody, nobody is meeting their goals. Well, nobody's trying to meet their goals. And in fact, the original Paris Accord, the United States, we were the leader. We were exceeding. So then it became an economic burden as opposed to an environmental achievement. So looking at the new write-up for the Paris Accord, what is standing out to you? Well, one that it has become a modern form of warfare that we don't talk about, right? I mean, if America would, you know, America, you need to do more and more and more, while China, you'll do less, less, and less. You know what happens in that? It, it, it is another form of modern warfare. All of a sudden, and I see it in Europe today, a, more, a, a stronger reliance on renewable energy, costs go up, Manufacturing is not able to compete, so costs go up some more, so manufacturing leads. So now let's, let's just kind of take this, this new Paris Accord uh, this year, COP26, I guess we're going to call it, mm-hmm. um, and, and what will happen? Well, America is going to become less competitive, and China will become more competitive for energy costs, and it, it just, the rhetoric is completely uh, out of bounds now. And I think it's just one more way of having economic warfare um, that's played out in the court of public opinion. And no one goes back. You know, one of the things as managers and business people we love is to look at our metrics, right? Did we achieve what we intended to achieve? And I think in in the Paris Accord, the answer is unequivocally no. And I, I still find the last piece of this that I find no one talks about is human factors and human engineering and the fact that people don't want to have these solutions dictated to them. Still, consumer choice is a very important thing. And when you take away choice, you often, you don't get the intended result. And so I think consumers need to find, and that's one of the, that's one of the areas we spend a lot of time with is trying to talk to consumers about why would you choose propane? Why did you choose propane? What are the features and benefits? Do you realize that what you're doing is good for the environment? I mean, I'll I'll tell you a classic story and I tell it all the time. This morning, I took a shower using propane. However, I used the Renai water heater, the most efficient water heater you can buy. You took a shower using an electric 
water heater. Who was better for the environment? And I'd say nine out of 10 people would say, oh, I'm sure I was. I used an electric water heater because they don't think about what's behind that plug when, in fact, the answer is in about 40 of the 50 states today, I was not only better for the environment, in most of those states, I was much better for the environment because even propane is cleaner today than the electric grid in 40 of the 50 states. Not, it's not even... Though. It has its accessibility. It's on grid or off grid. You know, you bury a right. propane tank to fund to fund your house, but if you live in the city, you're already on grid by regulation. Yeah, but but it, so again, if you live in the city, then you should choose natural gas water heater, and again, you would be the better steward of the environment. And again, that's why it kind of comes back to, and I, a lot of people would say, the fact there's an article in the Guardian uh, over in Europe that talked about, oh, everybody that's just you're just a bunch of fossil fuel people trying to hang on to your existence. I would argue, no, I am not at all. I am as hard-hearted environmentalist looking for good solutions as anybody on this planet. So I'm not, I'm not against anyone, but I am, tr I am for sound science, mm -hmm. good solutions, affordable solutions. I think a lot of times I'm more for equity and justice than almost anyone I meet because I'm trying to find solutions that, that every person can afford. So talk more about the equity and justice there, because what people don't realize, what is never said, because most aren't reading the moral case for fossil fuels to really educate themselves on the history, is that introducing affordable and reliable sources of energy changes the face of a community. It increases female education. It increases education across the board. There is uh, more consistency in healthcare, life expectancy, just a plethora of opportunities. And yet we're killing the planet. We are big, bad energy in some capacity, cough up more money, pay for the alternatives, which or subsidized, which is the government choosing a winner and a loser. Talk about the human aspect more for me. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, there is, there is a direct link between quality of life and access to energy, right? I mean, anybody, I, I spend a little bit of time in Africa because in Africa, we have had a program for probably 20 years where we were moving villages from cooking with wood or dung to cooking with propane. And it, and it is such a miraculous transformation to see it on the role of the woman, that the strong female of Africa who spend all of their day gathering firewood, trying to tend a pot of water. Care to feed everybody their else. <laughs> the, the minute we change their life by giving them a clean way to heat their water and cook their rice, all of a sudden they become a productive member of their town and, and changes there. And I think if people could see that transformation, you can apply it right back to the United States, right? It's all about quality of life, but that quality of life starts with access to clean and affordable energy. And we never really talk about that transformation and how it's important. By the way, we also talk about this world without fossil fuels and no one ever seems to think about all all of the fossil fuels that would go into wind or solar. I mean, people never seem to talk about, well, how does glass get made? How does steel get made? How does concrete get moved and poured? How do forests get removed from mountaintops so we can put the, I mean, I, I'm quite familiar with the offshore wind program here in Virginia, which 
is really one of the leading offshore wind programs. And I'm shocked at the amount of steel and concrete and marine vessels that are trying to build offshore wind, wind machines. It's incredible. So for anyone to think that we live in a world where fossil fuels won't be a vital part, they live in a world without clothes and without chemicals and without pharmaceuticals and without Tylenol. I mean, everything we know in our daily lives has been brought to us at some level because of reliance on energy. Well, you know, in my day to day, I tend to piss a lot of people off and I, I slightly enjoy it a little bit, especially when they're texting me on their smartphones and claiming the end of fossil fuels. And every message I get, I'm like, well, you know, job security there. Thank you very much. Why I really wanted you to dive into the human aspect is because if you read the 14 pages of the AOC Green Dream that will be the subject of said debate, but I know the Paris Accord will come in as well to your point. It's about feelings. It is about the intentional uh, degradation of minority communities. And that flies directly in the face of what has been achieved by the energy community for affordable, reliable electricity and energy sources. So how, what, and why Where's the logic behind this green dream that is, to your point, not offering tangible solutions, but talking about how energy is destroying impoverished areas? Well, yeah, and I think that for some reason, I think that the past use of energy had all this detrimental effect in terms of you could only afford to live near a power plant. The power plant is dirty. And, you know, all of the past areas then there's this future utopia that it couldn't exist. I mean, again, the basic premise is that power will come from the sun and the wind. It'll still come from power plants that are still in industrial communities. And by the way, they will still have traffic and, you know, uh, emissions. And there are all kinds of reasons. I don't want to live next door to a solar facility either. I don't really want to live next to, a you know, so it's just about, industrial complex versus others. I want to go back to the basic premise, and I say it quite regularly. I'm I'm the one who's studying the cost. And, you know, we're kind of living in this world now where it's two trillion here, two trillion there, 1.9 trillion. 300 Um, billion. I mean, it's, oh my God. Right. As they say, I'll take care of it. (laughs) Pretty soon it gets to be real money, right? But here's where I go back to, and I, I find it's particularly relevant right now is we've had such a tumultuous year over policing Black Lives Matter, you know, a real, a real increased awareness across this whole country of, I think, uh, race and ethnicity in a way that we've probably never thought about it before. And I would sure it doesn't really matter what who you are, what you what you have thought about before, you have a renewed way to look at it. Imagine how good life could be. If we didn't spend 12, 15, 20 trillion dollars on energy that will neither be cleaner or more reliable, and we spent 15 or 20 trillion on housing and education and policing, and really spent it on infrastructure that's crumbling, that's how you change a society. I think to me, the final frustrating rhetoric today is that. I believe these investments don't really get us to a cleaner spot. And so, so 
what was the benefit of spending $20 trillion? How about let's use the innovation that already occurs in clean energy and and energy will always continue to change, right? Innovation will always be there. And let's spend our 20 trillion on better medical systems, better policing, better infrastructure. I spend a lot of time in school transportation. Let's let's bring more teachers into the classroom. That's how you were going to really change the society. And I think that's when people talk about, oh, we must get to clean climate because that's about equity and justice. I'm like, no, spending 20 trillion on policing, education, and societal's real needs. No, that's justice. That's equity. All this other stuff is just some kind of a emotional boondoggle that makes us get to a worse spot. I don't, there's not one part of me that thinks that society is more resilient or cleaner or better for you and me as a consumer. It's just a more expensive society. Look past Europe. I mean, just don't have to look past Europe to see where's Europe today in terms of their energy cost and the cleanliness of their grid versus ours. And I, I worry every day that we're going to just repeat the same mistakes of Europe in many, many cases. It's funny how history becomes a, a big player and yet we don't want to read about it. But how right. is Perk facilitating this type of rhetoric, a more educated, because I know y'all have an implementation plan, but the reality is, is that, or at least I have found that although I think oil and gas and energy is very fascinating, and I think if you want to understand politics, you follow the flow of energy, not very many people find it as uh, digestible as I say I would, someone who's interested in it. So what are y'all doing to reach your constituents and then reach the masses beyond that? Well, I think the first part is we spent the better part of two years trying to make sure we didn't come across as climate deniers. And I think- Yeah, even, that's the big you know, problem, right? <laughs> yeah, well, because I think the first thing is if if you begin to deny, and a lot of scientists, a lot of really forward-thinking scientists will tell you the work of, you know, the IPCC and that whole UN project, as you said correctly earlier, is a lot of that science that we predicted 10 or 15 years ago, it hasn't proven to be true. The predictions of this or that didn't really work out. And by the way, it's because the models are really complex, but we have spent several years making sure we weren't climate deniers, because I think that was really important to us. We've also spent a couple of years really listening to the real needs and thinking about, you know, what are the what are the needs of those less able to pay? And by the way, what is the science? So one of the beauties about propane, we've always been a niche product, right? We've never been natural gas or diesel fuel. We've always had to work well with others and we work beyond the mains and having that niche underdog kind of uh, mentality allows us to even think freely about how we would participate with wind and solar and other clean energy. So we've, in the course of all that, then we've begun to work with thought leaders across the country. And I don't care whether they write for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, run a think tank, or, or hang out in their basement and represent you know, mothers united against certain things. But we've begun to enter those conversations and really on a very neutral basis to see is there a place that propane could play into these conversations? Where does propane and the use of, of propane, engines, appliances, all of that, where does it go 
in the next decade or two to facilitate not only a cleaner environment, but a healthier population, but one that can afford the solutions. And so when you bring all that together, we now kind of come out of the box with real strong views of how clean fossil fuels like propane, like natural gas, uh, can can improve carbon decarbonization today. I mean, one of the things we say is radically thought-provoking is it's not that we need to have less natural gas to improve decarbonization. We need to use more natural gas to facilitate decarbonization. And if we did that, quality of life improves, costs go down, everything good happens. So we've spent the better part of two to three years listening, and just now we're out engaging in conversations uh, and working with people to try to change the conversation. So for once, we're talking about real climate impact, real health impact, real ability to pay and afford. And that it's, it's really uplifting for us. So across the energy spectrum, you just said something super interesting about changing the narrative. And I, I mean, I grew up in oil and gas I've been hearing about what well, we have to change the narrative. Um, the industry as a whole needs to adopt the narrative first. And you'll claim one way or the other that we're doing that through ESG efforts, but that's not really true. It's being imposed on us by financial firms. There's no true consistent measurement of it. So how do we get the constituents of oil and gas to be more willing to be pro oil and gas to spread that knowledge? Because there is volunteer fatigue. You're speaking to really children who are being indoctrinated with false narratives uh, from other sources or those that are not in, in, in industry. So how do we fight back against the marketing ploy that is dirty energy? Well, I think the first thing is that everybody that's in the industry industry just needs to be able to tell the story. And they don't have to tell the story in a grandiose way to Nobel laureates. They need to be able to tell it to their neighbor. And as I'm quick to say, when you're hanging out on the third baseline with your friends at Little League and they say, hey, I know you work in the oil industry. Aren't you ruining the earth? That you are quick to be able to say, well, no, I'm actually saving the earth. And here's how. And so I think all of us in the oil and gas industry, and by the way, I firmly believe the oil and gas industry will be a huge part of the solution, right? That's where the innovation occurs. That's, That's where the, the detailed knowledge. We're always of, a part of the solution. That's we where the are detailed the knowledge is about how to deliver massive quantities of energy reliably and affordably. And so I firmly believe it'll be the energy industry that leads us out to cleaner solutions and better solutions as well. But I do think it starts by people being able to say very clearly, when you pull in in the morning to get a cup of coffee and someone sees the decal on your truck or your shirt, and they say, gosh, aren't you ruining the earth? That you are quick to say, no, I'm actually not. I'm actually saving the earth. And here's how that works. See, I always say yes, nice cell phone. <laughs> so as we are wrapping up, what really prompted this discussion was this uh, debate by two unqualified individuals. For the consumer, for the, the people that will be listening to this rhetoric, on one side, they're going to claim climate deniers and systemic racism. And on the other side, they're going to claim 
uh, anti-science lack of opportunity you know it's a dream it's not a reality economics all of that when we get past all of that crap honestly what do you really want the listener to be taking away from the conversation what should they be listening for well i mean i think first those debates will be emotional debates where science nor rational nor solutions are really off. And I think, you know, we, we see that every day. So again, I tend to not want to argue rationally with people who are having an emotional thought. So I think we have to go ahead and get past the point that we would be all better off with less carbon. We'd also be better off with less NOx, less particulate matter. And we'd love to be able to afford to have the quality of life that we've had over the last 50 years. So we have to afford these solutions. When that rhetoric is over, then I hope we then enter a period where we're having an intelligent debate that's beyond the emotion about what are the real problems and what are the real solutions. Because I can assure you, a real solution is not to focus on electrification of everything as the narrowest path possible. Everybody in Texas coming out of Winter Storm Uri can tell you they are glad to know that there wasn't just one path called electrification because it made them very cold and it didn't allow them to take showers or cook meals, right? And so I think those are vivid reminders every once in a while that this narrow path to to decarbonization is probably not the right thing. I do hope that, that after the debate, then we get to a spot where we're having an honest conversation about solutions. Those conversations are occurring in the back halls and we need to move it out. So now mothers and families and mayors are really beginning to have that because they're the ones that will bear the brunt of their decisions. They'll have to afford the solutions. I mean, one of the things that strikes me today, and I'm such a student of the climate science, not not whether 1.5 degrees is the right temperature, but if we change this technology, would we in fact reduce carbon? Would we in fact lower emissions? And in almost every situation that's described, it's either window dressing, it will literally have no material impact whatsoever on the environment, or in many cases, they're going from a, a pretty good existing situation to a solution that will be dirtier when you think about how electricity is generated. And one day, one day we're going to have an honest conversation. I, I do fear that there are so many special interests and there are so many points of rhetoric that, that maybe social media has made it really difficult for us to focus on the real issue. And, and now we listen in three second sound bites and we just get moved. But when we start deploying real dollars, I just go back to what I said earlier. If you gave me 20, in fact, I wrote an article this week called, If I Had a Billion Dollars. And I I was talking about, if I had a billion dollars, here's how how I would spend it wisely. But when when the conversation gets around to deploying, and by the way, they don't use this, it's two trillion here and two trillion there, but that two and two and five and four adds up to almost 20 or $30 trillion. If I had $30 trillion, let me clean the environment and change the society. And I I have a clear blueprint for that because we can do it by using the tools in front of us today. 
then we can also change housing and infrastructure and police and all the things that really do impact society today. That's that's the meaningful change I'm hoping we have. Hey y'all, Catherine from the Crude Audacity here. Now, as many of you know, I'm a petroleum engineer, a digital strategist, and a podcaster. I have worked with some of the leanest of teams in the most niche of environments to help them find their voice and leverage media for their benefit. So on May 15th, I will be joining the Weld County GOP for a night of empowered communication, where we will be speaking to Colorado conservatives about better ways to utilize digital strategy for their voice, their business, and as patriots. Cancel culture be damned. So again, that is May 15th. Tickets are below in the notes, and I look forward to seeing you there. I love it. Well, it all comes back to impacts, doesn't it? Understanding your impact, understanding the energy source's impact for the rational conversation, to your point. Tucker, this has been an excellent conversation. I really hope it is a stepping stone in the right direction for debunking the misconceptions of decarbonization and the green gang and really getting to the meat of the situation. Before I let you go, what are some resources you would recommend for those listening who want to dig in deeper and get past the politics and really understand what the future holds for energy? Well, you know, you already mentioned one, Alex Epstein, the moral case for fossil fuels is really a great spot to start, um, albeit a very pro-fossil fuel uh, writer, still one who really pretty well exposes the cracks. Uh, I'm reading Bill Gates book that just came out I have a Lord lot of respect have mercy. For huh? <laughs> Lord I, I have, have mercy, a lot of Bill Gates. I, I, I just I, I respect his view and I want to see his his perspective. Um, but I think you don't have to go further than just watching the nightly news and listen to how they report on equity or justice and think about what you could do if we spent money on those solutions and let the solutions that are really already in place happen. The last piece of that is just think about what I said. The other thing that strikes me, nobody's acting today. Everybody's talking about what they want to do a decade from now or two decades from now. Well, meanwhile, there are solutions today where you've talked about one over and over. Keep using natural gas. It is our domestic treasure. Um, and it drives our carbon. If you want to be a carbon hawk, here, use natural gas. And I think so there's just so many ways that if you just listen to the debate, but you step back and think through the science, um, it just becomes so much clearer. Well, excellent. Well, Tucker, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an excellent conversation. I look forward to what's happening. And for those that are interested in getting in touch with you, I will be sure to link Perk and all information down in the show notes. So be sure to check it out. Otherwise, have a lovely rest of your day. I really appreciate your time. Love your energy. We didn't talk about bourbon, but we'll do that another day. Bourbon will be the next <laughs> conversation. <laughs>